all, good morning. This is the series that's been burning a hole in my soul for a long time. If you ever want to be part of anything great, whether you're talking about a family or a business or a church or an organization or a charity, and I, I hope you, forgive me for breaking a sentence, I hope you do want to be part of something great. I'm not talking about getting rich or getting famous. One of the reasons why rich and famous people are so depressed is often they get those things and they discover that although they're rich and famous, they're not doing anything great. I mean, that's why the people in Hollywood, you know, spend absolute fortunes on the analyst couch and talking to psychiatrists. They've got the money and the trappings of success, but they're not doing anything great. But here's what I want you to understand. If you want to be part of anything great in your life, you have to think in terms of generations and that's difficult it's a challenge because see <clears throat> if you think in terms of generations you have to accept from the very beginning your own mortality <clears throat> the fact that you're not going to live forever and that someday sometime someone is going to have to take the torch from you and move on and take what you've done and build it up to the next level and it also attacks our pride because, see, we have to understand that all the things that we do in our lives, even if we're successful, there were other people who had a piece of that. And we are now a generation that's following those who were successful. So I'm just saying if you ever want to be part of anything great, you have to think in terms of generations. In Rick Warren's awesome book, Purpose Driven Life, that so many of you have read, you know that Rick begins his first chapter with, it's not about you. And I really think that's key to understanding life. It's, you know, that's a pretty simple thought, but it's been a renaissance thought to our generation because most people think it is about them. And what I want you to begin to understand today is that you and I, if we're going to be part of anything great, we have to think in terms of generations. Now, our, our, our theme is Vintage Values Generation 2. And I, I, love the, I love the emblem. It's been in my mind for a long time. The G, of course, stands for generation. And the two stands for second generation. But you'll notice that we have it represented a little differently than just a G and a two. The G, is, of course, is the letter of the alphabet, kind of serves as a factor. And the two is and what? It's an exponent. Yeah, everybody over here who's in high school and, and uh, <laughs> Got right on top of that. Those of us who have been a while in school, it's like, wow, what, was, what, is, what is that? It's like, it looks like somebody made a typo there and stuck the two up too high. An exponent. There's a reason for that. You see, when one generation is successful in passing the torch to the next generation, and generation two gets it, and they understand it, and build on it, the effect is not addition. The effect is exponential. Amen. For instance, you take five. If you add five to it, if you add five, it's 10. But if you square five, if you put one of those little exponents up there, five becomes 25. Take it to the next generation and cube it, and it becomes 125. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that if you take one generation, and that generation is completely focused on God and works and builds and does great things, if the next generation comes along and there's a smooth baton pass, that next generation won't just double what's been done before. That next generation has the ability to go exponentially further. And then if that following generation can communicate to the following generation after it, it's got a powerful and dramatic effect. Maybe the reason why I understand this so much and I'm so passionate about talking to you about this 
is I am a third generation Christian. If you want to understand the Hoover family, you have to go back to a teenage girl growing up in South Texas, my grandmother. My grandmother had probably less hope in her situation than most people. When I look at what God has done through our family and I see how it started with my grandmother, I look at that and think how precarious, how unlikely. Because see, she grew up in a home that was absolutely bitter. Her dad abandoned them when my grandmother was a little girl. She was the oldest of three kids. And because her father had abandoned them, her mother just lost it. My great-grandmother was the bitterest woman I ever knew in my life. She died when I was a child. You have to understand, the only memory I have of my great-grandmother's house is her flower bed. That's all I remember. Have you ever been in a place where the tension was just so thick and the, and the spirit was just so poisoned that you just couldn't even stand to be in the room? I was a child. I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know that my great-grandfather had left. I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew I could not stand to be in the same house with my great-grandmother. I was like, I just, all I can remember to this day, my only memory is I can tell you what the flowers look like in her flower bed. And my grandmother grew up in that environment. A bitter, angry home where there was no influence of God, there was no gospel, there was no church. Somehow, by the awesome, matchless grace of Almighty God, my grandmother came to know Jesus Christ. But she didn't just come to know him. She fell in love with him. If I ever knew anybody in my life who was in love with Jesus, it was my grandmother. Married at 16, my grandfather would not come to faith until he was well into his adult years. And there she was all by herself. No background, no supportive husband for her faith and began to have nine children of whom my dad is the oldest. But she was so in love with Jesus that it just spread to her family. And I rejoice to tell you that out of those nine kids, all nine of them were born again. Three of them were pastors. Three of her daughters sang in a Christian group. One of her sons became a Bible college professor. One became a multimillionaire Christian businessman. The beat goes on. I mean, she led an awesome family. And most of the time she was rearing those kids, my grandfather was not a believer. And I say that this morning because somewhere out there listening to me is a young woman whose husband is not a believer and he's not sympathetic with your faith and sometimes you're tempted to give up. You hear all those statistics about all those pastors and people serving God? I often wonder what would have happened if my grandmother had just come home from church one day and said, it's too hard, it's too hard. My, my grandmother loved preachers, and I always think that's why God gave her so many in her family. Her home, they had a 
home, a kind of a ranch in South Texas. And my grandfather had a lot of property and it was prime deer hunting country. And there were men who would come from Chicago and New York and pay big money for a lease to hunt on my grandfather's farm. The only thing was their farm was always open to pastors. Pastors could just walk in and my grandmother would cook and she would take care of them. She was a farm lady, but she had a passion for church and for pastors. And when she died, I was 25 years old. I preached her funeral. I had turned around and looked behind me and I've never seen this for a lay person before. The choir loft was filled with pastors. I've seen that for another pastor, never for a lay person. And there was no wonder there was a smooth baton passed to my dad. You know my dad, he's here now. For 49 and a half years, he pastored a church in Texas, the Fair Park Baptist Church. Dad never had a lot of training. He, he just felt that God had called him to preach, and he came to Fort Worth with nothing. And he and my mom, he started Bible college, but he was working hard on his, on a, on his outside job, but he was trying to go to Bible college. And just as he had been in Bible college about a year, he was, he was painting houses and working out of a lumberyard. There was a lumberyard that would find jobs for him, and my dad would go out and paint. And here he was, just a kid, just a few months behind him in Bible school, and the man walked into that lumber yard from the neighborhood and he told the owner of the lumber yard, we're trying to start a little church over here and we need a pastor. And almost jokingly, the owner jammed his thumb back and pointed at my dad and said, well, there's a preacher over there. And that man walked back to my dad, 25. My dad was just a 25-year-old kid at the time. And he said, we're starting a little church and we need a preacher. Dad said, well, I'll come out. They said, we can't pay anything. Dad said, that's not what I'm in it for anyway. He went out to a place, and I'm telling you the truth. I know you're not going to believe this. The name of the place was Ignorant Hill. <laughs> and my dad would pastor on that same location for 49 and a half years. And knowing some of the people who lived out there, I can tell you it lived up to its name at times. <clears throat> My dad was faithful. He did a marvelous job of pastoring. But do you realize that even, even at its highest, that church never really rose above probably about half of the number who attends just the early service here. That was the highest it ever got to. When I was 16 years old, with ambitions of becoming a lawyer and either going into broadcast journalism or politics, God came and put his hand on my shoulder. And I surrendered my life to the ministry. This morning, here in this building, it'll be well over a thousand, maybe 12, 13, 1400 people who worship here. The sermon will be downloaded on the internet, it'll be on television. Thousands and thousands of people will watch the sermon. Now, am I better than my, grand, my dad or my grandmother? I don't think I could, I don't think I'm fit to tie the Reeboks. I just represent what happens in a generation when you've got the benefit of previous generations. And all I'm saying to you is I just don't think that most of us think that way. In fact, there tends to be a disconnect among generations. I don't know why that happens, but, you know, it just kills businesses. It just kills families. And boy, does it ever kill churches. It's like people locked in their one generation, and all they ever see is themselves and their generation. And they fail to recognize the exponential effect of what happens when one generation collaborates with another. Listen to me this morning. 
and it is awesome when one generation collaborates with another generation. That's what this series is all about. I want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and look back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 2. Some of you have been attending Messiah for a long time, and you were with me in a series on Elijah. And uh, we called it On Fire for God. I want to talk to you today about his successor. That is why we call this, this series Generation 2. We're going to look at a man who came after Elijah. And we're going to be walking through the story of his life and how Elisha's generation turned out to be exponentially more effective even than Elijah's. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about that in the future. But right now, I just want to get you to look at 2 Kings chapter 2. And verse 1, if you have 2 Kings before you, and by the way, if you don't have your Bibles, this will be on the IMAG screens as well. Now, Elijah is a great man. He is a prophet of God, but he's coming to the end of his life. And God is going to take him to heaven. He's not going to die, but God is going to just sort of rapture him out. In fact, I believe that many of us may live till the time when we see Jesus Christ come back for us and we'll go to heaven without dying. That's what's going to happen with Elijah. So now let's, uh, let's take a look <clears throat> at this transition here between the predecessor and his successor. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elisha and asked him, Did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Quiet, Elisha answered, Of course I know it. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. But Elisha replied again, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. Do you, do you see that glue that's between these two guys? Elijah's generation one, Elisha's generation two. God's going to take Elijah to heaven this day. Elisha's saying, I'm hanging tight with you. I'm not going to leave you. He has a reason for that. Verse 5, then a group of the prophets from Jericho came to Elisha and asked him, did you know the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Quiet, he answered, of course I know it. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But Elisha replied again, surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. Oh, I like that. Isn't that great? They went on together, one generation with the next generation. Fifty men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The river divided and the two of them went across on dry ground. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, What can I do for you before I am taken away? And Elisha replied, Please let me become your rightful successor. What did Elisha want? He wanted to be generation two. My translation says rightful successor, which is the, the theme of the translation. Some of you may have a translation that repeats the actual Hebrew in which Elisha said, I'd like to have a double portion of your spirit. Some of you may have a copy, especially younger people, you may have a copy of the message. The message is really very, very full. Elisha was saying, I want your life repeated in me. I want, I want your life to, to be in my life. Now, we're going to work with some terms during this series, and, and I hope you, hope you can get what I mean by this. If you don't pick it up at first, don't worry about it because we'll get back to it. But what I want you to see is Elijah and Elisha represented two different, very distinct generations. We're going to call Elijah's generation the pioneer 
generation, the pioneer. Elijah became a prophet in Israel when there were no other prophets doing what he was doing. And by the way, just let me give you this so that you can work with this as we study Elijah and Elisha. Understand this, we're talking about more than just a preacher. Israel at this time was away from God. The king was not serving God. God needed somebody in the country that represented him. God wanted a leader in Israel, and that's why God pulled Elijah up and brought him, and he did all those marvelous things that we talked about in our last series. He was the pioneer, carved it out of stone. Remember how he stood up on top of Mount Carmel and said, if God is God, then let's worship God. If Baal is God, let's worship Baal. And there was nobody else out there. He was all by himself. He was a pioneer. But you know, pioneers don't get everything done by themselves. They need to have builders. They need to have somebody who comes along after them who builds on what they did. And let's just call Elisha the builder generation. If you study the story of Elisha, and I hope you will as we get ready for this series, what you're going to discover is that Elisha accomplished basically twice as much as Elijah did. He took the foundation that Elijah laid, built on that foundation, and as we're going to see in a few moments, he actually did so without carrying a lot of the baggage that Elijah carried. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is where it gets really complicated, and I'm going to need all your help in listening to me today, and I'm also going to need the Holy Spirit to help you get this message. What I want you to understand is you represent both generations. We're going to talk in a few moments about builders and pioneers, but you are both, and that's where it gets a little dicey. You have to see yourself as a pioneer for the generation that comes after you and a builder for the generation who came before you, okay? That's where you are. You are at a pivotal place in your life. See what I mean? Most people don't even think in terms of generations. They just sort of live their lives and start thinking about the next generation when they get old. No, don't do that. You are a builder for the generation before you and a pioneer for the generation after you. And you say, well, Mark, I'm 16 years old. It's kind of hard for me to think about the generation that comes after me. No, this is exactly the time to be thinking about it. Now, What I want to talk about for a few moments this morning is the game plan for pioneers. I've already established that everybody here is a pioneer because there is going to be a generation that comes after you. What is a game plan for pioneers? And as I said a moment ago, most pioneers don't start thinking about the next generation until they get old. That is one of the biggest mistakes that can be made in the world. Let me give you five keys for the pioneer generation. Number one, blaze the trail. Blaze the trail the trail. Remember, Elijah started out without the benefits of having an Elijah before him. He had to blaze the trail. Now listen to me, think about this for a moment. What was it that Elijah did that just captured Elisha? It was the life that he lived. Now listen to me, your effectiveness on the next generation is going to be directly tied to the life that you live. I talked about my grandmother a few moments ago. My grandmother's effectiveness on my dad and me didn't start when she she was my grandmother. It started when she was a teenager. So if you want to have an impact on the next generation, you have to be a person worth following. You have to be a person of character. That means that you can't live your life trying to please your peers. It means you can't live your life trying to to look like you fit in with everybody else, although I guess there's nothing really wrong with that unless there's sin involved. All I'm saying is this, you have to see yourself 
as somebody worth following. So number one, you have to blaze the trail. Number two, and this is so big, find a way to make things more efficient for the next generation. If people are going to follow you and me, we need to give them some help in their generation that nobody gave us. And that's where pride comes in sometimes. Have you ever noticed that, like say where you work, there may be some older people who know a whole lot, but they're reluctant to share it? And the reason for that is oftentimes people will say, well, nobody did this for me. But think about Elijah, and I haven't talked to you about this yet, but Elijah did something that was really interesting. When he was a young prophet, he started something called the School of the Prophets. It would be the modern equivalent of a seminary today. Elijah didn't get to go to seminary. He didn't have anybody to train him. But Elijah said to himself, I don't want the next generation to come up without the benefits that I had. Now, I'm not talking about making things easier for the next generation, but making things more efficient. How do we do that? Think about this. All of us have things that we have learned the hard way. We ought to have the passion to communicate those things to the next generation so that they will receive the benefit of what we have learned. If I've learned some things the hard way and I don't communicate them to the next generation and I allow the next generation to go make the same mistakes, then that means there's going to be a lack of efficiency in them taking things to the next level. So here's what I've got to do. I've got to look at my life and say, okay, you know what? There was some stuff that wasn't right in my life. There were some things that I learned the hard way. But I, I, and there were some things that I didn't know. I had to pick these things up through time and I learned them intuitively. But I want to leave some handles there on the trail for the next generation to use to climb up. So for those of you who think about yourself as a pioneer, remember to find a way to make things more efficient for the next generation. Oh, here's a big one right here. I don't know that I could say a bigger thing this morning. Remember that nothing really worthwhile gets accomplished in just one generation. That means you have to see yourself as a leg in a baton race. Uh, and in and, and, and a relay race. Remember that nothing really worthwhile gets done in just one generation. The test of anything in life, whether it's a church or a family or an organization or a business, the test is does it last? Does it continue on to the next generation? And so remember this, nothing really worthwhile is going to get fully accomplished in your generation. So that means you're going to see yourself as carrying the baton for just a while. Now then, we've, we've built up to this one. For all of us in the pioneer generation, what is absolutely key is that we learn to identify the values that transcend all generations. Now, you show me any family or church or business or anything, any kind of endeavor in life, and there, there are going to be two elements to it. There are going to be the values that drive it, and there's going to be the style that gives it definition. If you, want to, if you want to be successful in the next generation, you must isolate and identify and learn the difference between the values that transcend and the style that gives you definition. Because here's the thing, and heads up for all of us, let's say who are 35 and older, the style is not going to continue to the next generation. So if you identify 
things by style and that's what you want to impose on the next generation you're going to be a miserable puppy and you're going to be a pain in the neck to the next generation because they're going to say you know what that's not my style styles change values don't so if you're in the pioneer generation you want to have an impact on the next generation what you must do is sometime go to your closet get out a flashlight and a piece of paper and a pen and write down the values that trans translate from generation to generation and say to yourself that's what i must get across to the next generation my dad and i are both pastors and we've, we've done this thing differently. You know, when I was a young man, I served on his staff. Now, that, now he serves on my staff. And it's kind of interesting. We talk about things. My dad's church and, and the church I pastor are as different as daylight and dark. It's two different generations. Stylistically, they're very different. And because of the size and, and all the things that we do, there are times when I, I, I try to talk to dad about what we're doing here and I find myself saying, wow, I don't think I can get this across because I'm talking about a style issue. I'm talking about a way that we do ministry and dad just doesn't have a context for that. And I'm sure that if he were to talk to me about the way he was doing things back in 1955 or 1965, he would probably have a hard time communicating to me stylistically. But boy, when we start talking about what pastoring is about, about how it's about getting the word of God to people and changing people's lives and meeting needs and dealing with Satan and all, man, it's like it's high octane because when we get together, we can talk about those things and both of us understand them clearly. Amen. I got a little extra, I don't have that much time, do I? I'm running out of time this morning. Let me just tell you this. When I was 16 years old, I preached my first funeral. I was, on, I was not on staff, really, as far as being a full-time staff member, but I led music for my church. And a, and a lady died who was in the late 30s. And she had asked, if I, before she died, if I would preach her funeral. And I remember my dad giving me pointers on how to do the service. That was style. I don't do funerals like that today. But I'll never forget, as I was in the Shannon's Funeral Home in Fort Worth, Texas, before I went out on the platform, my dad said something to me. He said, Mark, remember this. People preach their own funerals. He said, if they lived a life for God, there's no eloquence that you can have that will match that life. He said, if they didn't live for God, you can't preach them into heaven. He said, just go out there and preach Jesus because people preach their own funerals. Now, when it comes to the style of the way of laying out a service that he taught me, I'd do it differently. But when it comes to that other part, that value, there's not a funeral I preach that I don't walk out on that platform and say, people preach their own funerals. You see what I'm saying? You gotta be able to isolate the values. You gotta know the things that go from generation to generation. But don't try to, don't try to impose the style on the next generation. I, I hope you don't get tired of this, but I'm a pastor, so I live in a pastor's world. I talk to pastors all over the country. You know, one of the things that, that I find that just really amazes me is that a lot of, uh, you know, there's almost a tension between predecessors and successors. And so, I'll, you know, an older pastor will call me, you know, a guy 75 years old or so, and, and he used to pastor, and, and now there's somebody else who's pastoring in his church, and, and uh, they'll get on the phone, they'll just say, oh, man, this guy after me, man, he's just letting things go, get, just go to see. It's just terrible. I'll say, well, how's the church doing? Well, numerically, they're doing well, they're growing and all that, but, man, he's just coming and changed everything. Oh, really? Well, what did he change? Is he not preaching the gospel anymore? Well, yeah, they're preaching the gospel. Well, they don't, they don't preach the Bible? 
Well, yeah, they, but you know what? They don't have the stained glass anymore and they, they took the organ out and he uses a different translation. You see what I'm saying? This guy's made this test over style. And if you want to have an impact on the next generation, you can't make the test over style because styles change. Values don't. And so what you got to do, if, you want, if you're a pioneer, and I've got to rush this sermon. Isn't this good stuff? I have been so pumped about this series for so long. Just, just remember this. I'll come back to this next week. Identify the values that go from generation to generation. And this, is, this one I love. If you're a pioneer, just imagine how fabulous it would be to be able to work side by side for a while with the next generation. See, when there's a disconnect between generations, there's a tension between them. And so if it's over style in the older generation, they don't want anything to do with the younger generation because, wow, they're just changing everything. And the younger generation says, the older generation just doesn't get it, man. They, if that happens, there will be a disconnect. And listen, there's no economy in that because if there's a disconnect, the next generation will have to start from scratch. Yeah, well, how can we be so clueless sometimes? So think about this. If you're a pioneer, set your goal to say, you know what? It's the values that matter. I would just love to be able to work for a while with the next generation. I love that. You know, I know in this service we have a lot of you guys here in high school and college. Man, I just love getting into your world. I know I'm old. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know I've got gray hair and stuff, but I just love being in your world. And when I'm 90 years old, if God lets me live, I want to know what's working. I want to be with the next generation that's going to do something for God. I want to feel the, I mean, I'm like Moses. I want to look over into the promised land. I want to work with Joshua for a while. I'm like Paul. I want to work with Timothy's generation for a while because I want something that transcends this generation and goes to the next. I want to work with that generation for a while. And listen, when generation, when, when the pioneers work with the builders, they get the benefit of both worlds. The builders will say, hey, I'm learning something from these old pioneers, man. They may not have the same style, but they got some of these values that I need. And the, and the, and the pioneers are going to say, wow, I love working with the energy that these builders have. And for a while, if they work side by side with each other, exponential things are going to happen. Amen. Are you cool with that this morning? Do you see what I'm saying? It's just great. Now, I've got to move now to builders, game plan for builders. What do you do when you're in that next generation and you now are being called to center stage? I want to give you three thoughts and I'll be through. Number one, leverage your heritage. The word leverage means to use something to your advantage. If you have, if you have something, then use it. Don't, don't just have it and, and keep it in, in inertia, but use it to your advantage. I, I put this in my notes. Um, be the one who gets it. I have always loved to be around pioneers. I, 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 and to this day I do. I still love talking with guys who are in their 70s and 80s who pastored for a long period of time who still have a passion for God. I always wanted to be the one who got it. You show me any group of builder generation people and there will almost always be one in the group who gets it. For those of you who are in management, you probably have one person in your team who gets it. I mean, they just, it's just intuitive with them. It just connects. You know, if, if you if parents, you probably have at least one child who just gets it. Hopefully you have one child who gets it, right? <clears throat> There's one person who gets it. Now, let's go back to Elijah and Elisha for a moment. Elijah started the school of the prophets. Now, 
I don't know, most of you probably don't know anything about Bible college or seminaries, but a lot of you do. When you go to Bible college or seminary, one of the first things that will surprise you is that a lot of the guys there are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. I don't know why that is. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says God doesn't call many stars. He doesn't call many noble. And, and then beyond that, there are some guys that you just say to yourselves, man, I don't know if I want to, I hope this guy is really where God wants him to be because I'm scared to think this guy may be the leader of a church someday, you know? And, and that's what Elijah had. I mean, I don't know how he got these guys. I don't know how he recruited, but he had this school of the prophets, and a lot of them were just not the sharpest knives in the drawer, and you can read about this. In, in the story that we're involved in right now, God is just going to reach down, pick up Elijah, and take him to heaven. And Elisha's right there. He won't leave him. He's watching it happen. He knows what's going on. He knows he's about to become the, about, about to become the successor, but the rest of the school of the prophets, they're just clueless. And all of a sudden, God comes down and picks up Elijah, and we're going to see next week, Elisha goes back to the school of prophets. He's getting ready to start generation two. And the other guys there are just worried to death because they tell Elisha, we got to send out a search team because who knows, the spirit of the Lord could have picked up Elijah and dropped him. That is a fact. That's right. And they kept pushing him. Elisha said, we don't have to do that. And they just kept pressuring him. Finally, Elisha said, all right, go out and look for him. They went out and looked for him three days and said, we don't see him anywhere. And then the next chapter, you see them complaining because they don't think they have enough space. And then it's during a time of famine. And the next chapter, and Elisha comes to town, and, and Elisha says, we're just going to put on this big pot of stew and feed everybody. Elisha, he's a builder, man. He knows how to get things done. And he's going to feed all these, young, you know, all these young seminary students. And so he says to them, go out and collect vegetables and bring them in. And one of these guys goes out and finds a poison gourd and throws it into the stew, and everybody gets sick. I mean, these guys are not sharp. But the thing I love about Elisha, Elisha was the one who got it. See, he, he saw what he loved in Elijah's life, and he said, I can use that. I want to leverage that and take it into my generation. Every one of you who is a builder, you need to look back on the people who had a big influence in your life and write down the things that meant something to you that have made a difference in your life and say to yourself, I'm going to use that to be effective in my generation. One of the saddest things that happens with builders is when they're given things from the previous generation and they don't use them. They don't leverage them. We all know what it's like. We hear stories of second generation who lead business, and the business goes down because they don't learn from the previous generation. So if you're in, if you're, for all of us who are builders, be the one who gets it. Be the one who gets it. Look at the things. Take time. Take a few moments to focus on the things that you got from your, from your parents and be the one who gets it. Number, number two for builders Determined to have all the strengths and none of the baggage. Every one of us can look back to pioneers who helped us, and we can also reflect on the fact that pioneers have baggage. They have issues. Now, when you look back at the baggage that the previous generation had, you can make two mistakes that are generally made. One mistake is to say, man, the pioneer generation of my life, they had all kinds of baggage. I'm going to blow them off and not even think about them. They were losers. They didn't. And I'm just going to have to start from scratch. That's a big mistake. Because no matter how flawed the pioneers are in your life, they still had some benefits that could help you. I don't know why this is, but pioneers tend to have rough edges. See, Elijah was a great man of God, but Elijah had issues. He had a hot temper. He was mercurial. Remember, he was up on top of Mount Carmel, and God rained down fire from heaven. But then he got depressed, and he asked God to let him die. And I mean, Elijah was a great man, but he could be all over the page. 
Elisha saw that and he said, you know what? He said to Elijah, I want all the power. But when you study Elisha's life, he didn't have the baggage. He didn't have all these issues, all these emotional issues and the anger and the, and the depression. Like I say, one of the mistakes is to just write off the pioneer generation because they have rough issues. Often they get those rough edges because they had to claw and scrape to get from the ground up and they didn't have the benefits that you have in your generation. The second mistake is the obvious one, and that's to repeat the baggage. Hey, if you look back at your mom and dad, and your dad was a good man, a good provider, but he had an explosive temper, you say, you know what, if you're his son, you can say, I'm going to be a good man like my dad, I'm going to repeat his good qualities, but I'm not going to have his baggage. And that's not a judgment, that's not negative, it's because you love him. You say, he was a great pioneer, he did these things, he did X, Y, and Z, they were great. I want these things in my life, but I don't want the baggage. You're growing up, a young lady, your mother, is, she's, she's good, she's, she's there for you, she meets your needs, but then she's got some issues, you know, and she's maybe a little bit of a, she, you know, she nags your dad and does some stuff that you, you say, okay, my mom's not perfect, she's a pioneer, she's a flawed person, has some rough edges, but she's a wonderful woman, and I'm going to learn what I can learn from her, and I'm going to leverage those things in my life, but I'm not going to repeat the baggage. You're going to see this. I know I can't explain it like I'd like to right now. You're going to see this in the life of Elisha. He is a powerful man. And I mean, I, and when it gets right down to it, if you were to say who's the greater man, Elijah or Elisha, oddly enough, it's probably Elijah, the pioneer. But Elisha accomplished twice as much with none of the baggage because he leveraged. We talked about that a moment ago. He leveraged the good things and he used them to his advantage. So that should be your goal. If you're a builder today, look back at the people who affected you and you say, I want their strengths, but I don't want their baggage. I'm five minutes over time. You're going to struggle with me on this series because I just am so passionate about this stuff. The last thing, determine to move the ball down the field as far as you can in your generation. Move the team. Uh, you know, when we travel, my, my wife a lot of times will, will go to sleep in, in the back of the van while we're traveling, if I'm driving long distance. And one of the things that I always love is when Mariel goes to sleep and I drive and she wakes up and she'll say, wow, look how far down the road we are. <laughs> I love that, you know. I'll almost speed just to get to hear her say that. <laughs> I can't believe how far you got us down the road. Remember this, you're not by yourself, you're a team. See, I'm the anchor for a team. I don't just run from Mark. I have my grandmother with me and my dad and all the people who've invested in me. And when I die, what I would really love to hear is the next generation say, wow, I'm surprised how far you got us. I'm surprised how far down the field we got. That's what I want. I hope that's what you want. That's what Generation 2 is about. Would you just stand with me, please?